welcome to Stroke FM. We are recording this episode on the 29th of March 2020, kind of a few weeks in, for Canada anyway, into the COVID-19 pandemic. I have a great, distinct privilege of being joined by an incoming colleague. Hi, uh, my name is Jamie. I am currently a fourth-year medical student at the University of Toronto, uh, but I'm soon to be an incoming PGY1 resident uh, in the neurology program at the University of Toronto. Welcome, Jamie. We are so uh, pleased to have you. Uh, and I'm Dr. Human Kostravani, one of the stroke doctors in Toronto. Jamie, today we thought to talk about together about some of the challenges and essentially complete different planet that's occurring to all of us because of the COVID-19 pandemic and maybe expand on what this has meant for you and uh, your training and some of the thoughts that have gone through your mind and going through your mind currently and the, just how it's completely changed things. I mean, it certainly has done it for us. I can't, I can't only imagine what it's done for uh, yourself and all your classmates. Yeah, yeah. It's certainly uh, been a very uh, both hectic and uh, difficult time for both not only the medical students, but the faculty as well as they try to navigate uh, this uh, difficult situation of ensuring that we still have an education, but also trying to mitigate, you know, any of the harms that they put the medical students in. Absolutely. And it's caused a sort of this disruption across the entire spectrum. Like, for example, uh, for folks that are listening, um, if you're not in medicine, there are folks that are graduating their residency program. So they're, they're either, for example, in their second year of family medicine or their fourth year of uh, general medicine uh, or their fifth year of residency from various subspecialties. And some specialties are six years, for example, cardiology or neurosurgery. They've already done three years and now they are doing their final uh, sort of board certification for their specialty. And all of these exams, uh, certainly for the spring, have been postponed and uh, folks getting their license has also been postponed. And uh, the Royal College is trying to figure out what to do with regards to providing some form of licensure. Um, what about you, Jamie? So you, you're finishing med school and you're about to go into first year residency. What has happened locally with regards to making that happen, given that your exams are also probably disrupted. Um, well, I can say that on our end, the major uh, licensing exam going into residency would be the LMCC uh, or the MCCQE Part 1. Um, and so, so far, that exam has actually been um, sort of indefinitely postponed. Um, we Most, most uh, students are usually scheduled to write it sometime in late April, early May. Um, and then residency obviously starts uh, July 1st for uh, residents across uh, Canada. Um, however, uh, given the circumstances of having to write the exam, uh, it's a test that you have to write uh, usually online and in person. Um, so we go to these testing centers um, and we all write the exam uh, usually at the same time on different dates. Uh, but obviously with the restrictions around COVID-19, um, that just uh, isn't possible. I know that uh, today um, the Ontario government actually uh, released an announcement that they are uh, prohibiting gatherings of five uh, or more people. Um, so obviously these testing centers usually hold around something like 20 or 30 people for a testing uh, site at a time, and that won't be possible to have any of those exams uh, written uh, with that many people present. Um, so it's kind of like a weird limbo right now for us where you know, uh, our, our medical school has actually been canceled. Uh, it's not really canceled, but more, more uh, 
um, ended early is what it was because uh, technically we still have enough, uh, I guess, uh, credits or uh, enough um, experience in our fourth year to graduate without any penalties. Um, but um, our our selectives or uh, or electives uh, for those who don't know what selectives are um, have basically been canceled, um, and so we are pretty much off school. Um, but we can't write any exams. Um, nor can we apply to get any sort of uh, educational licensing from the CPSO um, because a lot of the checks that we need, for example, like a criminal record check, we can't obtain because the police stations are all shut down too, uh, to the public. So, um, we're, yeah, it's kind of a weird state for a lot of medical students in their fourth year because yeah, we're, we're kind of transitioning into residency, but we really can't get a head start or jump on things. Um, we can't apply for licensing. We can't write any exams. And so, yeah, a lot of medical students are, are just kind of sitting at home waiting for something to change, looking at the news, waiting for emails from the faculty every day for updates. Um, I know uh, kind of uh, upsetting for a lot of students is our, our convocation also got canceled. So we don't get like an official graduation. Uh, we kind of are having a last day of medical uh, school Zoom meeting. Um, in order to kind of commensurate all the medical students on completing their fourth year. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, uh, I think both of us also realize, and we definitely want to spread the message that, you know, for, for our case in Ontario, the government has been fantastic in progressively moving uh, forward their uh, physical distancing measures. And, you know, you could argue that either way, saying, you know, could it have been even more stringent at the, at the beginning and so on. But at the end of the day, the right things are happening to promote that physical distancing, both you and I are obviously uh, proponents of that uh, to help mitigate uh, the the spread of this uh, exp this uh, virus causing this very uh, sort of devastating pandemic. And so this has to happen. At the same time, as you said, like we have to keep medical students safe. At the end of the day, you guys are in your training and you're about to enter residency as doctors. And the last thing we want is anybody to get sick from this. And what we're seeing now more and more is that it, it's definitely not a condition or a disease state that preferentially affects only uh, so-called old people. Um, and obviously that's brought out the worst in people sometimes about ageism, things like that, but it affects everybody. And so and we can't tell who it's going to affect. Young people are certainly affected with no comorbidities. And so despite these inconveniences, um, we all certainly from, from a physician perspective think this is the, absolutely the right thing to do and, and uh, will mitigate the risk of spread in the community uh, for this very serious uh, illness, which, you know, to be said, like, this is a new virus. This this has not circulated in humankind before that we know of. And so there's a lot about it that we don't still know. And more and more interesting science is going to be coming our way. And um, it's quite important to take it seriously. And so, uh, Jamie, you're about to uh, graduate med school. You are, mm -hmm. uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, you are a physician right now, and you definitely are. Your advice is? <laughs> Stay home. Wash your hands. Don't touch your face and practice social distancing for sure. Absolutely. And, uh, and so that's, that's definitely a joint recommendation. You heard it first. That's Stroke mm -hmm. FM. Uh, no, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so, so moving forward, like, uh, let's unpack this a bit. We talked about sort of what it meant from starting school, like uh, the residency portion and how it's impacted the exams. Obviously, these are necessary steps that we just talked about. What about what, what, what are some of the human stories that you've heard, like from yourself or colleagues, if you're willing to share? What have been some of the difficulties emotionally or personally uh, that you could share, you know, sort of anonymously about kind of the human side of this? 
Yeah, so I I find actually from from obviously from talking to my fellow colleagues uh, also in the program that it's kind of a mixed bag of emotions. You know, uh, part of them are are thankful that the faculty took the steps to uh, mitigate any harms to medical students that they they canceled the selectives, uh, which was kind of in accordance with what other universities were doing at the time. Um, but others are also kind of it's kind of a double-edged sword because we, you know, we got into medical school because we wanted to help people in these situations. We wanted to treat people. Um, and for us to kind of just sit on the sidelines and watch as, you know, these, uh, these staff and physicians and residents kind of get slammed with uh, the incoming amount of cases of COVID and, and seeing that they, they, they desperately need help. It's hard for us to kind of sit here. Um, and so uh, from talking to a lot of my friends, a lot of us are kind of just itching for a way to find out how we can help out. Um, and I know a number of medical students from my uh, class um, have started these initiatives. Uh, one of them being uh, a uh, sort of a collection of uh, PPE uh, drive. So what we're doing is we actually compiled a list of all the local businesses in Toronto, dentists, um, uh, even like ca- uh, carpenters or contractors and things like that, people who may have access to PPE equipment. Um, and we're basically just cold calling them, asking them uh, if they have any PPE equipment that they can donate uh, to the hospitals to, to kind of help uh, combat the shortage. Um, and so it's, it's kind of like, you know, uh, it's kind of scratching that itch uh, for us to kind of uh, get our hands in and, and really help out, you know, the medical community. Because like I said, it is it's kind of a we're 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 happy that we're kind of put out a, a little bit out of harm's way, but at the same time, it's kind of what we signed up for, right? We kind of signed up to to help patients and to help uh, the the medical community. Um, and so uh, I know that uh, uh, even on my selectives, uh, we were we were uh, instructed to kind of avoid uh, people who may be suspectful of having COVID. Um, but I was in the emerge working with the staff and. And I saw that he was really just getting slammed with with uh, people with symptoms, but were deemed low risk to have COVID. And I just really wanted to help them out, uh, but uh, it was it was kind of hard because we we were basically instructed and prohibited from doing such. Right, and the situation is rapidly evolving, and and this sense of helplessness, especially from you guys, uh, given that you are so close to starting uh, treating people, is is challenging. You know, but it's hard to know because the challenges are that sometimes. Even uh, residents may not be able to uh, participate, de- depending on how the situation evolves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, you know, obviously, we're we're going into becoming residents ourselves, and so it's it's kind of like you know, even though you're you're holding us back now at this point, uh, we're only going to get thrown in in a couple months, anyways, because we have to start our education. Um, and what what I want to draw a point to is actually uh, our year. It's maybe not such a big deal because we're going into residency and, and we already have kind of our determined career paths. Um, but where it really seems to have a huge impact is actually on the third year medical students. Um, because uh, I'm sure you've seen, but uh, we're often around helping out on different medicine teams. Um, we're doing our rotations. This is kind of where we're getting most of our core learning from. Um, and their education has really been put on hold. And so not only does that, uh, you know, have an impact on their education, but oftentimes I found that even, especially on medicine, uh, medical students actually had a pretty big responsibility. We, we often took on, you know, a couple patients ourselves um, and we looked after them day to day, obviously, if they weren't super complicated. Um, and we really did help out uh, some of the medicine teams. 
Uh, and now, since they've been withdrawn from these teams, um, it's kind of fallen onto the residents and staff to take care of. Um, so it's almost like losing some of the, you know, the team strength and the team numbers. Um, and the number of patients coming to hospitals only increasing. So it's, it's kind of a, uh, it's, a, it's an awkward situation now. Absolutely. Yeah. And another issue is, you know, um, even though yourself and many colleagues are, are working as, uh, as resident physicians, uh, depending on how this goes, uh, it's going to have other types of constraints uh, on trainees. At the end of the day, um, there is this balance, as you said, between service and uh, education. And um, right now, all I can say is that everyone in the faculty, uh, uh, not only at our, at our shop, but other places are immensely grateful to all of the residents that are working on the front lines as physicians. And uh, I would suspect that without their help, uh, we would not be able to adequately uh, get all of the care that we need. One of the challenges is doing a pandemic, as everybody knows, all the other medical issues, some of them tend to you know, be diminished and folks don't come in as much. And certainly we're doing a lot of virtual care, but you know, things like heart attacks and strokes still happen. And so that type of care still is needed uh, regardless of pandemic. Yeah, no, uh, for sure. And I think, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's no secret that uh, uh, hospitals in Ontario are both, uh, both seem to be over capacity and both understaffed at the same time. And so, uh, you know, it really, really does heavily rely on, on the residents and the staff and, and where it's hard because, yeah, the main focus of, of, of a residency program is to promote education and to uh, train staff. And that can sometimes fall to the sidelines during a pandemic like this, where patient care becomes the forefront of uh, everything that we need to do. Um, it kind of uh, it's, it's, it's like what's happening in, um, you know, south of the border here in, in New York. Um, we're, we're learning that uh, some medical schools there are actually getting their uh, medical trainees, their medical students to start residency earlier. And the reason they're doing that is so that they can have more hands on deck to help in the treatment of these patients. Um, and it's not currently the reality here in Ontario, but obviously if things kind of get to that, uh, that could easily become a reality here. Um, and so luckily Ontario has been doing a pretty good job. Like you said, uh, our numbers aren't as bad as New York. Um, but it's something that's definitely on a lot of uh, students' minds is, you know, where does, it, where does it lead to at the start of our residency? Are we going to come into a situation where we have, you know, thousands of COVID patients and um, how, how can we uh, possibly have a, a good education or, or opportunities for education if everyone is really preoccupied with this? Absolutely. And our hearts and uh, minds and, you know, prayers go out to all the folks across the world who are struggling so hard, including the folks in New York City, which appears to be the epicenter right now mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. the United States. I mean, this is, it's just, it's just so, so challenging. And, you know, again, to, to, to be very concrete, you know, this, this, uh, this does not mean we're safe yet. Our numbers are a bit better, but we have to keep the pressure, the physical distancing, right, keeping away from people that are, you know, congregation of people. Good hand hygiene is, impe is impeccably important. And mm -hmm. uh, there's certainly, just while we have this platform, you know, no need for uh, people in the real world to be using masks as they're going about their daily practice because there is no benefit to that. Right, right. And especially since there is a shortage of this equipment and we're seeing that at the hospital level. And really what we need it for is those people on the front lines who are interacting with these COVID patients day in and day out. Because if, if they get sick, then we have no one. Um, and it's, it's, it's imperative that they, that they remain healthy and able to treat more patients. And, uh, Dr. Kosovani, I actually wanted to ask you, um, at the staff level, 
what kind of changes are you seeing implemented? Because um, while I was actually in the Emerge, I, I, uh, I heard actually from a number of emergency staff that um, they almost felt that it was kind of one, it was kind of uh, what they said unfair that really the, the, the people who were mainly dealing with a lot of these majority of COVID patients is the Emerge staff. They're the ones who are the first point of contact. They're the ones who do the kind of test and send home. They're the first ones to see them. Um, and there was kind of a, a weird sense of, uh, of that they felt almost like they were, um, you know, they were the frontline people seeing these patients. Uh, meanwhile, you know, some of the staff in the hospital work upstairs. They don't really interact with them unless they come to the floor. How, how, how do you see things uh, at the staff level? Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the COVID pandemic has, has touched everyone's lives, including the ability of all of the various services in the hospital to provide their usual care. I think that um, one of the challenges with it is that it's definitely prevalent in the community. And so from a safety perspective, it is quite uh, reasonable to say uh, that any uh, person that uh, one encounters could potentially uh, have it. And so, for example, the Emerge you know, is a hotspot in some ways, but that is why we've moved a lot of our care for clinical services that are outpatients to virtual care uh, because uh, even having people sit in a waiting room or congregating or coming in and out of a, a, a clinic visit can have an equally uh, high risk for a provider who is not emergency medicine based or critical care based. Um, so those are some of the other considerations. Uh, from, a, from a stroke neurology perspective, some of the things that we've, we've done are, are to virtualize everything. We are uh, running the list virtually, either through uh, Zoom or Google Hangouts. We are conducting family meetings uh, virtually through telephone or other means. Uh, and that's because, uh, in fact, at our, at our shop and many other uh, places, visitation has been uh, halted. Uh, and it's obviously very difficult for patients who are, who are hospitalized, but every hospital is doing its best with uh, uh, strategies such as use of iPads to try to get caregivers to be able to to uh, interact and see their loved one. Of course, for end of life, there are, there are special measures that can be placed, but uh, we're doing as much as we can virtually. Handover is done virtually. So we have residents in the hospital at three different sites. Like they're, they're in the hospital, they're working, taking care of patients, but for things like handover list, handing over the list of patients, uh, running running the list for the day's events, uh, handover in the morning from the night before, all of that, the residents are sitting in different offices, certainly within neurology, and and doing that care virtually, um, and so that's key. Uh, that, that's been that's been very helpful. Teaching, uh, we've done that virtually as well. Academic half day is now gone fully virtual with Zoom, and it's and it's worked out fairly well without issues. Uh, and in fact, we did one on this a protected coat stroke as well. Uh, and then the other things that we've done is, you know, to to uh, virtualize also team rounds. So multidisciplinary bullet rounds uh, where we discuss all of the patients that is also being done uh, by phone call. Um, you don't need to see patients physically at that time. We're discussing things like disposition. How do you go home? Um, social work, physiotherapy, that kind of stuff. That's been that's being done uh, virtually as well. Um and this is a great time for camaraderie to really know the get to know all of the people uh, right from uh, the PAAs to the um, the nurses, all of the allied health, and to really uh, connect with them one on one with the appropriate physical distancing to figure out what are the patient's needs and to minimize um, exposure to the patient. So, meaning that if someone is completely 
uh, uh, sort of compensated. The nurses have no concerns. They're waiting, for example, for transfer to another facility or home. They don't necessarily need to be uh, examined if there's no new issue because uh, even though uh, we can touch base with them by, for example, calling the patient even locally within the hospital through their phone, the interaction with that patient may bring additional risk to that patient. Uh, God forbid in the case where that provider um, is, uh, you know, uh, themselves affected by this. And I think the challenge, as, as we're seeing with, with COVID-19 infection, is that there are a lot of folks that are asymptomatic, um, both in the community and potentially healthcare providers. And so, for example, many hospitals have now gone to wearing a mask throughout the shift, and that mask does many things. It, it, it helps, you know, droplet spread. It helps remind the provider not to touch their face, nose, and eyes, and things like that. But also, it protects patients from the 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 worst case scenario that if a provider is in fact asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic and and maybe at risk. Now, I will say that of course any minimal symptoms are being taken extremely seriously, both at our hospital and other hospitals, to say to the healthcare provider not to come to work. So I don't want to spread a message that people are sick and then putting on per, per, personal protective equipment and of some nature and then coming to work. That is not the case at all. Right. But, absolutely no risk. Yeah. Yeah. But the mask actually has many benefits aside from the one that's very, uh, very easily understood, which is the business of, you know, preventing droplets. There are those two other ancillary benefits. So we virtualized everything. We, we minimize interactions that don't need to occur. We are making sure that people wear scrubs. So staff and residents are generally wearing scrubs now securing their hair, securing their glasses so they're not constantly touching their face, and then uh, and then routine mask use at work as well. Now, can, can I just ask, because I'm, I'm actually pretty curious about this, um, do you think that because of this pandemic, um, there's, all, there's somewhat of a silver lining in that uh, some sort of either what they may be redundancies or um, maybe maybe some practices that weren't, you know, up to date or necessarily as safe, uh, do you think those things are kind of being identified now that we're in sort of the situation? And do you think that this may have an impact in the way that the hospital runs even beyond the the scope of this pandemic? Yeah, I think that's a very good question. I mean, one of the things about this pandemic is that when it's over, uh, there's going to be a lot of sort of uh, consequences to what has happened before uh, and also what we're going to do after. Not only will there be the, you know, the the grief from those that are lost and or those that got very sick from it. But and also just the kind of the parasympathetic response of people saying, "Oh my God, we survived that." I won't be surprised if, you know, some providers will not only break down during during the pandemic, but even after when they've survived it, they might they might have some emotional consequences. But but I think what you're saying is, are there inefficiencies and not efficacious? I would say, let's say, are there non-efficacious redundancies? Redundancy is a very good thing in healthcare, much like in other disciplines such as aviation. But are there redundancies? that we could trim, sort of trim the access and provide efficiency by some of the things we've done now that could translate to normal times? And I think the answer to that would be a yes. Right. For example, like I know that a lot of hospitals are kind of almost slower to catch up in terms of things like electronic EMRs. Like a lot of uh, hospitals still run on paper orders and paper charts. And obviously with paper orders and paper charts, you have to be there in person to do those things. And that also creates the, you know, the possibility of transference of if someone were to be sick and they cough on the page and that and someone else uses that, they get sick too. But obviously with a virtual chart that eliminates that. So I, I'm just thinking that 
with the uh, we, with this pandemic, there's kind of that push that we need to we need to kind of change things up and kind of move away from the dark ages of you know paper and pen um, and move to having more things done virtually and more things done remotely um, if that's a possibility because of the situation that arose um, this year. That's right. And some of those efficiencies may be gained from a technological perspective, meaning that we can spend more time with actual patients rather than uh, documenting. And so there might be some gains even in, in the way documentation is done. But what you said is also true. It's not necessarily having to sit there and write something in the chart. It's just that even in places that don't have electronic documentation, most of the labs and investigations are electronic, which means having to sit uh, uh, in a particular clinically exposed area and do that uh, interact with the computer and interact with the paper and so on. And so, again, we have to, yeah, this this gives us the opportunity to trim, if you will, any excess or inefficiencies that are not value add. And, you know, there will, there will probably be a lot of what's called process mapping with something called value mapping, which is to see what is the value of each individual step. Some of the other things I wanted to highlight are... Uh, from a consultation perspective to avoiding like this, this is not anything that's intended normally, but we're trying to avoid things like hospital tag. So when the patient comes, we're trying to admit them to the right service from the beginning, minimize transfers across teams. We're trying to be decisive in our recommendations, including recommendations to discharge the patient when such and such criteria are met so that they're not staying as inpatients because no secomial or in-hospital transmission of COVID uh, is definitely a real thing. As far as our behaviors, um, in, a, in addition to kind of e even what we wear, which is, you know, promoting wearing scrubs and routinely changing scrubs, you know, once a shift, for example, and, and not to uh, not to bring in, uh, you know, clothing that could go home that may be contaminated. Um, th these, these, again, may be interesting things that come out of that uh, for certain types of services, not, not every service. Because I know certainly on, on services like medicine or, you know, psychiatry, it's it's kind of commonplace that you wear you know professional casual clothing um, day in and day out and and obviously we take those clothes home we wash them at home um, we don't uh, they're not necessarily considered as sterile as you know surgical scrubs or anything like that because they they aren't being uh, washed or kept at the hospital um, and so uh, yeah I'd be curious to see how afterwards if if there is sort of a, a laxity in in the sort of I guess professional standard for um, you know, dress codes um, and the way that, uh, you know, rounds operates and, and obviously uh, uh, record keeping uh, as a result of this whole uh, pandemic situation. I think, I think we will see some big changes uh, because uh, people may be a little bit, uh, uh, in so many words, like more hypervigilant um, after this kind of situation blows over. There's so many cool also technological things. I mean, for example, we talked about Zoom earlier. Zoom is a kind of a, a commercial product, which is now finding mm -hmm. itself having to be readjusted for uh, consumer use. They never yeah. thought that their platform would be used so much for consumer base. Similarly, internet services are being taxed, not only locally, but even regionally. And so, uh, you know, common providers of fun stuff like Netflix and Amazon Prime, mm -hmm. they have to oh, throttle yeah. uh, their their uh, their thing their um, yeah. bandwidth to allow for normal transmission to occur so it's also a good time to say like these technological things are it's really interesting how they're being impacted across industry but also thank goodness uh, we are at a time point where this pandemic has hit us where we have these advanced technologies right, right. to be able to communicate virtually sit in three separate offices run rounds see patients allow their family members to to you know see them virtually through an iPad or some sort of tablet device with a with a camera and video right. service. 
So we're also very fortunate. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I think it just shows that, you know, internet is not, it's not just a, uh, like a, 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 a privileged thing to have. It's almost a necessity in today's day and age. And, and especially for those trying to access healthcare today, um, I know that a lot of uh, uh, walking clinics, a lot of physicians are doing virtual visits. They're doing it either via the phone um, or via the Zoom meetings. Um, and so I think it, it is really a necessity. And I think that um, more and more people obviously becoming a bit more tech savvy. It's kind of like you're forced to adapt. Um, even my, you know, my aging uh, Russian grandparents are, are learning to use Skype just so that they can uh, video call me. And it takes them, you know, a good half hour to get on with me, but, but they do. And so it's, 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 it's one of those things that I think every place should uh, embrace rather than kind of resist. Um, uh, you know, this, this, uh, change of internet and, uh, technology. That's fantastic. Those are all great points. And, um, maybe we'll conclude on, on also saying that, you know, uh, as providers, whether you're a med student about to go into residency or a resident listening to this podcast, um, this is a great time to know your infection prevention and control local, uh, you know, uh, protocols and to be aware of what's happening at other centers such that this, the communication can help make things better both at other centers and your own center. It's also a great time to make sure you 100% know how to don and doff personal protective equipment. Um, somebody on Twitter said, you, you put on your PPE like your life depends on it because it, it actually can or may. And I think that this, you know, this might be a bit extreme, but it really probably is not too extreme, to be honest. Mm -hmm. this, this virus affects people differently. It is true that you know, approximately 80% of cases are mild but we don't seem to be able to know why it's not mild in certain individuals and others. And fundamentally, that has to do with the molecular and physiologic properties of how this virus interacts with each human being's uh, immune system and the host response and the amount of inflammatory response that could trigger right. sort of a non-event or something as severe as acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS. And I think that right. that is not a gamble we, anybody would like to make to know what kind of immune system uh, response we will have to this pathogen. And so personal protective equipment is a very important part to end on and say, please know, uh, know how to do it and put it on and off. And uh, as med students about to enter residency, and again, God forbid, if you have to enter residency sooner to support uh, the health force, the healthcare force, then that's a really important thing to learn how to do correctly and, and, and be comfortable with it. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I just wanted to throw this in as a little plug. I know that, uh, Dr. Krosservani, you're currently working, or, or you actually just uh, published a uh, guideline on how to do a protected uh, stroke code. Um, so I guess uh, the listeners can look forward to hearing that in the future. Um, and it's very interesting about how many services are having to adapt, um, you know, day in, day out procedures um, in this uh, pandemic. Well, that's a great uh, note to end on. And we look forward to having Jamie back on. And we're going to discuss some of these things, including the protected code stroke, which is going to be very interesting. And we, we were very uh, grateful to be able to share that with a lot of people. We've already shared a lot of it on the internet. Uh, you can find it at codestroke.net forward slash COVID-19, C-O-V-I-D-19. And uh, and hopefully the, the it'll, it'll, it's, it's already being distributed through various channels. And we hope that each center can make their own a protocol to do something called the protected code stroke uh, uh, to, to run it. Well, Jamie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for your insight. And uh, we wish you and all of your medical student colleagues who are about to enter residency the absolute very best. And it, it's a privilege having you on. 
And I will also say that Jamie is responsible for the great editing work that you've heard behind all of our episodes that are coming forward. And so special thanks for that as well. <laughs> well, thank you very much for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be on board with this. All right. So this is uh, us signing off. Yep. Signing off. <laughs> <laughs>